Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Brett. How are you? I am wonderful. Brett, wow. I was wonderful when we recorded our last. Was that yesterday? We've recorded several this week, and we're trying to get it all in before the holidays. And I hope you're wonderful today, too. Yeah, I think wonderful is pretty good. Okay. All right. right. It's Friday. I love Friday. Friday is a beautiful, beautiful South Florida day. It is. It is. No snow in South Florida right now. The temperature has changed. It's really... And we have a wonderful guest. I'm really excited. We do. So, wonderful all around. I feel wonderful. I'm, I'm glad. All right, I feel like we've got... I think we've exhausted the wonderful. Let's, Monica Vigas-Piton. Did I pronounce that right, Monica? Yes. Close Monica, enough. I'm just going to stay with Monica. We're on a first name basis. <laughs> sure. We are happy to, to welcome Monica Vigas-Piton, who is the Executive Director of Legal Services of Greater Miami, which provides legal assistance to Miami-Dade and Monroe County's low-income residents. Monica is responsible for a staff of more than 60 including 30 attorneys. And that's a, you know, that's a big law firm. So if you do the math, that means there's about 30 other non-attorneys. 30 that Is that right? attorneys and yeah. 30 non-attorneys. That's, that's excellent. Right. Well done. This guy's good. No calculator. No. So she's been with legal services for about 20 years in a variety of capacities, including director of program development and advocacy director of the health and income maintenance unit. And before joining legal services, she practiced mostly in the area of public benefits law, concentrating on Medicaid issues. Monica has represented clients at the appellate level and trial level in both state and federal courts. And we are very pleased to have her here with us today. Welcome, Monica. Welcome, Monica. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And thank you for all you do, which we're going to talk about today. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your background, how did you get there? And then we'll talk about legal services. How did you get into doing this kind of work for the benefit of the public and, and those in need? It's not that interesting. I'm a Miami native. I grew we'll about- be the judge of that. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, actually our listener. I, I, listener yeah, let's singular. see if they drop off right here. <laughs> exactly. No. So I grew up in Miami. I'm a Miami native, mm-hmm. born and raised. I was actually raised about 10 blocks from where our current office is. Oh, really? So I traveled far. Did um, you go to high school? I am a product of the Catholic school system down here in South Florida. So St. Michael's was elementary school on 32nd and Flagler and then St. Brendan High School. Oh, nice. Excellent. Yes. And then went on to be a double cane. I'm extremely grateful to the University of Miami. They were very generous with my education. It afforded me the opportunity to do what I'm doing today. Honestly, I'm not really sure how I fell into it in terms of I went to law school knowing that I wanted to either work in government or some sort of nonprofit, Public but wasn't service. sure what it looked like. I mean, I just kind of, I was the typical poli-sci history double major in undergrad. So, of course, I was going to law school. Right, exactly. <laughs> or become a professor. Which, way. Uh, if you know me, you, yeah, you know, of course, go to law school. <laughs> right, yes. Right. And so, when I got to law school, I actually learned about legal services. So, I had never heard of legal services of Greater Miami even though I grew up here, mm-hmm. which shows me that I have work to do as an executive director. I think our client community knows a lot about us, our low-income community, but I was privileged to grow up very sort of middle class, mm-hmm. not lacking for any of the basic necessities, and so never had a need to seek anything like that out. Having said that, my parents sort of typical Cuban immigrant household, you know, like be grateful for what you have mm-hmm. and for the grace of God, you know, we'd be in other circumstances. So 
always very aware of how blessed I was. And that was through hard work, but also a lot of luck. And my parents right. acknowledged that. Mm -hmm. And so making sure that other people have those same opportunities just seemed like a really good fit when I started right. legal services. Well, you started in the private practice doing public benefits work, which is a little unique, right? Not in no. private practice. No, I've no. always been, I've, my entire career has been at legal services. Oh, 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 really? Oh, okay. I didn't realize Yeah, I that. started as a law clerk in our homeless legal assistance uh, project. Mm -hmm. Had an incredible experience there and just stayed on. Oh, I see. You, yeah. Okay. So did you learn of that position or get that position through a program at UM? I did. Okay. I did. I, uh, UM has this program, the HOPE program, mm -hmm. and they will basically pay their students to do clerkships at nonprofits that's for the a, summer. That's a great um, program. Yeah. yeah. And so I got the uh, Homeless Legal Advocacy Fellowship Project through that through that process. Can you equate, and I, I don't know if there's any numbers to this, but the number of attorneys that work for you have worked for legal services. Like, is there any sort of statistics on them doing what you did in the path of getting some exposure while in law school and then deciding, oh, that's what I want to do? Or, you know what I mean? Or is it everyone's just kind of different path? I think every, I mean, we get most of our, I would say most of our attorneys come straight out of law school. Mm -hmm. A lot stay. I mean, our mm. average employee at legal services has been there almost 20 years. Wow. Uh, for attorneys, it's a little less. Mm. The non-attorneys have been there longer on average, but our entire executive team has been there almost 20 years or more. Wow. So um, you all grew up together, We all grew up right? together. We were just, ha I was just having this discussion yesterday with somebody whose son turned 23. And I was like, I feel like I knew you when you were just past 23. Right. And so having wow. those kinds of That's conversations, awesome. it's really, we were just talking about feeling older and there's something that keeps you young when you are in the same you know, you're around the same people that you were with when you were in your mid mm. to late 20s. And they're young. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. It is. So tell us a little bit about legal services. What does it provide? And to really what segment of the community does it really service? So we, we provide free legal assistance. I mm -hmm. mean, that's like the yep. perfunctory answer. But really our mission is to provide access to economic and social justice. Mm -hmm. And in practice, because that's a very lofty goal, right? What does that look like? How do we know we're getting there and are on our on the right path? I think it's when we're leveling the playing field and getting our clients access to opportunities. Mm -hmm. Because people always say, you know, the American dream and, and it's the greatest place on earth to live. And for a lot of people, that's really true. I mean, I think it is, it can be the land of opportunity, but in some ways, some of there's sort of systemic and institutional barriers mm. that our clients encounter and if they're not able to overcome them, they're not going to have access to those opportunities, even if they're working really hard. And so our work is to do that, to sort of level that playing field. So ensuring that they have access to safe and affordable housing, access to education, healthcare, veterans benefits. The Health and Maintenance Unit is right. really a unit that focuses on representing individuals who are terminated, denied, or reduced any government assistance program which those are really safety net programs. So, I mean, it's really about making sure that our clients have access to basic essentials so that they can provide for the necessities for themselves and their kids. And mm -hmm. so they're in a position when their child is going to school, they're not stressed out that they're going to lose their home. They could focus on their education or when they go to work, they're not right. distracted because they're dealing with a potential right. eviction right. or they don't have enough money to make ends meet or right. food in the fridge. They can focus on their work. Is there a typical reason why this population might be denied those benefits? 
Because you said one of them is, you know, assisting the right the community members in, when they've been denied certain benefits. Is there? It depends on the benefit because, I mean, we, we provide representation in a variety of areas. So, right. you know, food stamps is one benefit. Medicaid is another. So a lot of times all these programs are, are income-based right. and there's income and asset limits. So sometimes there's misunderstandings or right. a lack of documentation that's a, that's that the client needs to provide. Mm-hmm. They're dealing with pretty difficult right. bureaucracies. Complex. Right. In exactly. a lot of instances, submitting documentation online, which our client population, some of them are super savvy, some of them right. are not. Right. A computer savvy. So we help them with that process, but sometimes they're denied because paperwork didn't get through to the right place. And sometimes it's that the agency, in our opinion, is misinterpreting their regulations right. that on long, uh, in terms of eligibility. And so we'll represent them right. in hearings. Okay. And is it fair to say that the majority, or I don't want to characterize the percentages, but is much of the work reactive? How much of the work is reactive as opposed to proactive? Because I would imagine... A lot of it is somebody's being evicted, so you're responding. They're responding to something rather right. than you know being proactive and trying to help someone do something on the front end. You know, you know what I mean. I, I do know what you mean. Yeah. So just to give you a little bit of background on the organization, right. where fifty five percent of our work in twenty one was eviction defense. So that oh, was yeah. So they, that's extremely reactive, right? extremely reactive. Yeah, I think yeah. twenty, although tenants' rights and eviction defense is always a large part of our practice. Right. It was a disproportionate amount in 21 compared to other years Mm -hmm. because of what's happening in Miami-Dade in terms of the housing crisis and Monroe County in terms of the housing crisis. And by that, you mean just shortage of affordable housing, right? Right. right. I mean, the last time I read an article on this, it was like, not only is there a shortage, but for every available unit, there was 30 applicants. Wow. So it is, I mean... It's tough. Right? It's very, it's a really challenging right. circumstance. In some instances, I'm not sure how our clients are able to manage and get by. Right. When you're talking about two bedroom, median cost of a two bedroom rental is like 2200 or in that yes. range. It's really challenging because our clients are making, clients that are eligible for our services, if you're at about 100% of the federal poverty level, that's an individual that makes about 17 grand. So, and then it starts a going year. up obviously, right, per household member, but not doubling. So I think it's it's That's basically eight eight dollars an hour, so something well, like that, or right. Right, something in that ballpark. Right, well, but I mean, it would be really, in Florida the minimum wage is higher. But yes, right. I think sometimes saying, it's employment it issues. Right. Correct, yeah, yeah. correct. It's really nuts. So you were saying fifty five percent are eviction, right? And then, and then a, I mean, a huge per, other percentages of the government assistance, but it's right. a variety of different programs, so, and right. it varies depending on what's happening in the economy. I think a perfect example is in the summer of 2020. We all remember when the unemployment system effectively broke, right? And yeah. there was, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and I still remember Only the Herald, the, the cover of the Herald that people are like lining out up outside of a library for paper applications in the middle of a pandemic. And so our, I had to run the numbers twice. Well, the last time I looked at this because our unemployment work went up 1100% in 2020. Well, yeah, <laughs> I was like, well, that can't be right. And we had to, so it was a huge increase. And a lot of that was the broken system. And some of that was, you know, incorrect denials, even when they did get, make mm-hmm. it through the system. So it's, it's a, it's a variety of things. And sometimes it all becomes, I mean, I've been there long enough that I see sort of the waves and cycles. Right. I mean, when I first started, I think it was in 2005, the agency that administers a lot of public benefits programs was modernizing, which it used to be that you could walk into an office and apply for these benefits. You can walk into partner's office, but you can't really walk into a state office and apply for these benefits and have that like one social worker they used to have and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so that whole modernization process, we had huge numbers of people. I mean, this was like now almost 20 years ago. 
But every time that the state tries to, or the federal government tries to sort of modernize the program and do more, use more like artificial intelligence and determining eligibility and, and that sort of thing, we do see increases in, in individuals needing our assistance. So what have you seen thus far in 22? I would imagine, given what we know of the market, that, that tenants' rights are likely to still be extremely it's going to be a uh, higher. It's going to be yeah, higher it's than it was worse. in 21. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We're yeah. growing to try to meet that demand. That's mm-hmm. the area that we're growing most aggressively in terms of staffing. Mm-hmm. But we're the only legal provider that provides eviction defense here in South Florida. There's other legal providers that practice in other areas. We all collaborate. We try not to represent clients in the same area because mm-hmm. clients need you know assistance in different areas. So not to duplicate services, mm-hmm. which is just a best practice for nonprofits. So we know that we have to grow our staffing capacity in order to meet that need. But to be very honest, and I tell this to people all the time, I'm very transparent about this. We turn people away every single day for eviction defense. Because? Because we absolutely cannot serve the number of people that need assistance. I mean, at one so point- you're a we law were, firm with too many clients and not enough lawyers, right? Correct. Right. Correct. I mean, and I'm talking about turning people away, even though at one point we were opening about 80 cases a week. Wow. So, and we have total 30 attorneys. So we definitely had to prioritize and we try to do that. But we, I'm always very transparent with both our supporters, our Mm -hmm. client community about what we can and can't do. And and I say that knowing that we are aggressively looking to staff up in that area, but I want to be clear about what we're doing. So so just to jump on that for one second, do you have a sense of the caseload per attorney, average caseload per attorney? To give us a sense of if you're turning work away, and I know that those thirty attorneys are probably overwhelmed yeah. by right. the amount of work they have. So it's it's attorneys cycle through cases, right? right? right. So they have in excess of a hundred files per year, mm. easily. Probably closer. It depends on the attorney and the area of practice. So tenants' rights cycles faster through cases, and let's say right. our consumer unit that right. has foreclosures right. and. Right. Bankruptcies, And so that's just a very different feel. Mm-hmm. But in the tenants' rights unit, you're talking about over 200 cases in any given year easily. Wow. And wow. so, I mean, and that's that's a mix of cases, right? Some of those are full representation in court with hearings. Some of them are just you're try- you can resolve it with negotiations. Mm-hmm. And some of them are providing advice to clients where there's nothing we could do. Because if, the, if there's no legal argument and the landlord is not willing to work with you, right, you're providing some service connecting them to other providers of, mm-hmm. of social services, whether it's shelter mm. or, you know, a housing navigator from another program that could help them find an alternative place to live. So that's the full-time, full staff. And I know you're, as you indicated, you're trying to staff up for full-time staff right. and you're turning, turning work, as Jeff said, away or people in need away because you just don't right. have that. So right. sort of two-part question, we can get into one part of it first, which is resources. What's the fund, you know, where do you get your funding from? for legal services. Right. And, you know, let's start with that. I don't want to ask a <laughs> compound question like a, like a bad line <laughs> deposition. I was waiting to. So <laughs> you're going to object. object. You're going to object on form. Right, yeah. So so where does legal services get its funding from in order to staff, you know, staff up to, you know, to have the current staff that it has and mm-hmm. to, you know, to deal with these issues? So we have our operating budget is about eight and a half million dollars. Mm-hmm. Just over four million of that comes from the Legal Services Corporation. It's a federally chartered corporation that receives funding from the federal government every year, Mm -hmm. knock on wood, right? And we get, like I said, about $4 million. We're one of 140 field programs for the Legal Services Corporation. 140 nationwide? Correct. And how many of Covering the territories. Florida has seven. Seven. Yeah, covering the state. And so we cover the... the, Half of your budget roughly comes from that. Right. And And then then the rest is a very 
big mix of uh, foundations, county grants, um, and uh, some state or federal grants, sort of a mix. You know, sometimes they were through the state, but they're originally as federal dollars. Mm -hmm. But a lot of grant funding, significant grant funding. Is there anything from or through the Florida Bar? The Florida Bar Foundation is a funder of right. legal aid programs. They're, they're, they were in the foundation column when I was there. Right. I mean, there's okay. other foundations. So right. the Florida Bar Foundation does give us funds, and they're about to embark on a new funding structure with their the amended um, trust account rule for right. IOTA. Um, right. I don't know if you're familiar with that. So they are, but but we are projected to get some money. It's a little uncertain. We'll know by the end of the year. So I'm sorry, you're saying so they're amending the trust account rule, like where, they did, they did, they and interest. they basically, um, I mean, the IOTA funds have always, well, since the '70s, I guess they've been there, and so they just restructured the rule a little bit. The Supreme Court finally approved it. I mean, basically, for a legal aid program as such as ourselves, it's not a big change. It's basically still going to provide support for the kinds of work that we do. Mm. Uh, they just formalize some of the sort of administrative rules, which we sort of operate in that way with a lot of our other funders. So it's not a big change for us, mm. to be honest. Okay. I have a question related to the workload because you guys cover your case. Oh, did I interrupt your second not, part of your... Not at all. I would love... You have a question. And <laughs> yes. so we were all yes, turning to you. you to await so that question. You cover the case law like any, like an in-house department in a corporation, I assume... A lot of the work is done by your in-house team, and then you outsource much of the work to hopefully lawyers who are providing volunteer services but right. are not employed by legal services. So, what percentage do you know? Like roughly, is I it, do. It's okay. a, it's a, it's a is it's, it tiny? It's, it's a small percentage that we're we're we're, we're watering with love, and right. hopefully, will grow. <laughs> right. So, la- to give you some perspective, last year we handled twenty in twenty twenty one we handled about five thousand cases right. total. And again, that's everything from advice and brief service right. to an appeal. Right. And our pro bono cases was, I can't remember the exact number, but in the 400s. So that. less so, than 10%, so, wow. eight, six, six, 7%, right? And so that's barely another couple of lawyers. If you have 30 in-house, you you kind of have, you make up maybe two more right, from but outside. It's, but, I, 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 but it's not because I think it's, it's a little more than that, to be okay. honest, because I think in some cases we rely on pro bono attorneys to do stuff that would be much more challenging for us to do. Oh, so they co-counsel okay. on more complex right. cases. Okay. The firm right. brings additional resources, which is absolutely fantastic. Right. Additionally, sometimes it's rare because the most of the pro bono that we, uh, we have pro bono attorneys do is areas of practice that we are that we operate in mm-hmm. but sometimes it might be an area that we don't you have don't do, practice right, right, a good gotcha. example is probate that comes up sometimes in foreclosure cases mm-hmm. so you have sort of a collateral issue and so it really is critical to the case when we're able to do that so i think i don't see it sort of in that transactional way like oh we why do pro bono if we could afford to hire two more attorneys because it actually there's sort of this exponential growth that happens from those relationships. And right. and it also educates, I think, the private bar on what we're doing and the importance of what we're doing. And that is helpful not only to our organization, but I strongly believe it may be this too altruistic for our community, right? Because where we started this conversation, I grew up middle class, I think pretty privileged and didn't wasn't exposed to certain things and may not have thought like, why do people have some of these challenges? It took mm-hmm. me working in this space for 20 years and even still, you know, you have to sort of try to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Yeah, but true. if you never have a need for that, it's even harder to right, do. I mean, I've met with attorneys that are clearly conceptually like supportive of our mission. And, you know, the first thing I'll hear is like, 
but why do poor people need lawyers? And yeah. and they don't mean it in a critical way. It's actually an honest question, which I am I love when I hear it because then we could have like an honest conversation about right. why poor people need lawyers. Right. Like what services could know they what need? You don't know. Right. right. Like what and, services could they need? Right. right. You know, right. because you're lawyers for mostly people with, that are wealthy. And so you know, if with more money, more problems, so I'm not answer? sure. So, so yeah. Yeah. How do you answer so that when you hear that question? That our clients that are living in poverty or near poverty live in, have to operate in highly bureaucratic environments and that they have barriers that they have to deal with the justice system. And it is not designed for self-represented litigants. Right. I mean, we try to put together programming to make mm. it more accessible yeah, and all that good stuff. But I mean, your attorneys, people retain you to represent them because it's a complicated system. Right. That system is not any easier when you're in crisis, yeah. poor, and usually less educated. And so I think that having an advocate that's trained to help you and stand there and advocate for you can be extremely powerful right. for, for our clients. And it's not, those skill sets are not Something that's taught anywhere. No, no. I mean, it's not like they didn't study hard enough in high school or whatever. Right. It's just not taught. Like filling out paperwork and like, you know, determining what departments or what agencies are the appropriate ones. Right. Where do they else, where else do people learn that? Right. And dealing with the courts now, I mean, some of it is like, are they e-filing? Are they not? I mean, think about yeah. if you were not, tra- I mean, some attorneys have trouble with this, uh, right? Yeah, you run to your assistant or your paralegal, right. like, right. how do we do this? And so if you were just sort of dropping in because for the first time, because you had an issue that you were personally dealing with it, it would be very challenging. And maybe it's not your first language. I mean, let's add a language barrier in there too. Correct. I mean, they're like, how many other hurdles can we have? Correct. Transportation barrier. I mean, there's so many. Connectivity. Right. Connectivity. Right. Right. I mean, you used to be able to go down to the courthouse go to the clerk's office and, you know, with a piece of paper, fill out a form and and turn it in. I'm not saying it makes it easier, but if, you know, connectivity issues and complications with online and, and all of that, you know, may lend itself to a little mm-hmm. bit more difficulty. And, and even though one would argue it has greater access, perhaps it's a little more limiting. I just for think the I agree. Of the I mean, I think there's definitely parts of our client population that the connectivity is not an issue right. and virtual hearings and do provide more access. They don't have to use public transportation. They don't have to, they can miss less work. I I just present to you that I think it's a complicated issue. For sure. That it's not a one size fits all. We're big. So an example I always say is like, we should open more doors and windows, not like close, open one and close another. So Agreed. we we use that example with our, option, but not the only option. right right we right. use that example for our intake. So you know when I first started in 2002, we only had what we call walk-in intake. Client had to walk in to become, and then like I think it was in 2007 or something, we we added phone intake, which I thought you know our team included myself were going to revolt. How could we possibly interview people on the phone? You know now it's preferred right. I mean, but it's when sure. something is new. It's like course, the first yeah, few months. Course. You know right. the staff is just like, what are we doing? This is nuts, and it it works out, and the clients really prefer it. And then we added online intake. We've been doing that for five or six years. And really online intake for our clients is an initial online application that converts to phone. We call back and Mm -hmm. still conduct an interview. 60% of our clients reach us by phone, though. So the statistic you went through before, which is about 5,000 cases, Mm -hmm. maybe about 400 of which is from outside lawyers, pro bono. Right. But it doesn't seem like that tells the whole story because, as you said, you're turning away clients as well. So... Right, like, right. How many cases could there be, or how many clients could get representation if you a had the funds to, to staff up to what you needed, or b 
that there were more lawyers who were willing to give of their time to provide pro bono work? That's a hard question to answer, but yeah, maybe it's, I, mean, uh, of, I don't know. It, in terms of how, how much more outside lawyers would you need, like full time? You know, like, I mean, I could tell you the Legal Services Corporation does this, they call it the justice gap report. Mm-hmm. And it's basically the difference between the gap between the legal. legal, the number of legal problems that individuals that are eligible for our services have mm-hmm. and the number of attorneys that are able to available. provide assistance, right. right? Their estimate is that about 92% of legal problems go without, of our eligible client population. Right, right. So you're not 92%? even 92%. So that's, so, but not all those are being brought to legal services. Correct. Right. Okay. Yes. So I, th- I don't think just, right. a lot of the legal problems that we represent individuals in, mm-hmm. they do not necessarily self-identify as having a legal issue. Right. So for example, when you introduced know. me, right. you said you focused on Medicaid work and I did. Right. I mean, the clients that I was seeing, they were covered by Medicaid. Everybody agreed that Medicaid was, they were insured. So it wasn't a, a denial of of eligibility for the program. The kinds of cases I handled a lot of was they were insured by Medicaid. Medicaid is now privatized, so all of them are in HMOs. And the HMO was denying a healthcare service. My clients tended to be children, so mm-hmm. but they were denying a healthcare service. So think of kids who are medically complex and maybe have therapies in the home or private duty nursing. And the doctor says, okay, um, you need 12 hours of private duty nursing so your parent could go work. And we're going to 12 hours daily and the HMO would approve four or eight. That's still a constructive denial of the rest. And so we would represent them in those appeals. Mm -hmm. And so my point is, and that was a long-winded answer, but you and maybe even, especially even a client, would not necessarily identify, oh, they didn't oh, approve my private duty right. nursing hours. Right. I can get an attorney. Right. Yeah. And they will like, help oh, they me said for four free. hours. And so, so uh, okay. we do a lot of yeah. outreach for, Education, you know, there's some stuff that intuitively, say, you know, you you want an attorney, you're getting evicted. You're right. like, you were served a complaint. I'm, I have to go to court. I kind of know I want an attorney if I can get one. Mm-hmm. But for public benefits denials, we handle uh, veterans benefits. So an, a veteran who was either denied a benefit or maybe they're approved, but they're not approved at the correct disability rating. It's a system mm-hmm. that they have to determine like, and so we'll represent them in all those cases. And so we do a lot of outreach, work with a lot of partners that serve our client community so that they can help us identify those legal issues and mm-hmm. refer people over. Wow. Okay. So here's the question. Yes. If you had a wish, whatever magic, a genie in a lamp, whatever it is, <laughs> if you could have a wish to solve the, you know, the gap, like how would, what would be your approach? Like what, what would you ask for from the Florida bar or, or the lawyers of the state of Florida? I'm just, I'm trying, or South Florida, I'm trying to limit it to you. I'm not asking you to answer date, for, the, yeah, for legal the world. Services of date, for right? your date group, like if, how would you, what would you ask for, for all the lawyers out there? Well, I would ask that all the lawyers out there get engaged with a legal aid program. So I don't know that it will. Do you want them to each do a case per year or what? I mean, if every lawyer, I I don't know, what's the solve? What's the solution? And then we're 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 going to do that right here today. Where where we need to go and then we'll figure out how to get there. That's right. Let's go. So how do we, what's the solution? One case per lawyer or what? I guess I don't I don't I don't mean to be the lawyer, but I don't think that's the solution. Okay. I think that puts us on a path to a solution because okay. I think it does a few things. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, in the immediate, if we have a hundred percent of pro bono engagement by all the private bar right. working with a legal aid of their choice, because there's plenty of us out there right. that need help, it makes them aware of the need. And inevitably what ends up happening when attorneys do pro bono with us, they get it, they do this work. Most of them really enjoy it and come back. And so they take additional work. And additionally, they support us financially because they see 
the great work that we're doing and mm-hmm. how hard it is. I yeah. think that's something that people always underestimate because we have really creative attorneys doing good work under, you know, not the best circumstances, but then also they're dealing with clients that are in crisis, in sort of perpetual crisis. And that could be a big drain on the attorneys. I mean, obviously for the clients, but I'm thinking about the staff that's dealing with this as their job. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always thinking like, what could we do to make sure that our staff is taken care of? And I think seeing how hard this work can be really would put legal aids in a better position and also the issues that we work on. Right. Because it makes you sensitive to the housing crisis. It makes you sensitive to the educational issues right. that that children face in the public school system in terms of accessing appropriate education. Whatever is the issue that you're working on, access to health care, it sort of makes us more informed and better citizens. I see it as the same way that I think people in the community in general should volunteer mm-hmm. is how I think attorneys should do pro bono. And I always tell right. people, like, isn't it best to volunteer at the top of your license? That's, that's something they use in the medical field. Like. They always want medical professionals operating at the top of their license. You don't want a doctor doing what a nurse does, ideally, because you're paying them like a doctor. <laughs> and I always say like attorneys, isn't it great? You get to volunteer at the top of your license and it's where, you know, you get paid a great salary, hopefully, to do this work for people with a lot of money. You could use those skills for our client community. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really, really rewarding. <clears throat> what if we made, and I, and I appreciate what you're saying, that like, would it help if we had some kind of mandatory you know, we've talked about this before, residency or something like for lawyers before they, after law school and before private practice. With legal aid? Yeah, with some yeah. some type yeah. of I mean, legal service I hesitate requirement, to, you know. Right. I, I always hesitate to mandate anybody's engagement with us because the last thing I want is an attorney that doesn't right. want to doesn't be there. Be there. <laughs> okay. That's good. Having, that's a good, that's a great having, answer. That's having something I said that, right. I think, I mean, I personally would be supportive of anything that encourages higher engagement with pro bono and with civil legal aid. And sometimes, you know, there's a lot of things that you could, although I think pro bono is the best and highest use in terms of doing the legal work, there's lots of things you could do with legal aid programs that is not necessarily taking a case. So we do community outreach. We have some attorneys, a couple of attorneys that will work with us on community outreach events Mm -hmm. because they have a tax background. And so we do a lot of outreach on tax issues because we have a low-income taxpayer. And educating and then we have a low-income taxpayer clinic where although we don't help people file taxes we handle any we handle tax controversies for our client community Hmm. we actually have an attorney who's also a cpa on staff she's been with us forever she's fantastic and so but we'll have attorneys that say you know we're not going to take the case but we'll help you with outreach we'll do we'll help with intake so you're interviewing clients but you're not taking on a case for full representation so there's a lot of ways and you're still sort of getting a flavor of what this organization is working on and what the community is dealing with right okay I agree with you. I think engagement in one form or another, mm-hmm. voluntary engagement right, um, <laughs> would, would be great. But maybe a mandate from, let's say, even the Florida Bar to say, okay, okay you need to give up you know, some hours and or financial commitment right every year. Maybe that's helpful. But I think once people do get engaged, perhaps like you said, they'll I see agree. that and, and then that will further additional engagement. You, know, you mentioned University of Miami has program. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, getting uh, access to or getting people started early in law school, you know, and requirements there may prove even more helpful than after law school, you know, like to start the process to expose people. I totally agree. Early on, right? Yes. I think it's letting them know that this is an option as a career and that too, most of you are not going to choose it as a career. And that is fine and fantastic. We need attorneys in the private bar, but you, this is what you should be supporting 
as right. an attorney. Right, yeah. You know, the medical community is pretty good. Doctors who, they kind of, when they go back to support charities, tend to support a lot of healthcare access work right. and stuff mm-hmm. like that. If it would be great if the legal community got in the same sort of culture. Right. Um, supporting <clears throat> access to justice because that is what you yeah. do sort of in, in your in your professional life. And so making sure that others have access to justice. And I think that that would be fantastic. I mean, a lot of law schools do a pretty good job yeah, now I think so too, about, yeah. about inculcating that sort of value into attorneys and talking about it. I think University of Miami and FIU, St. Thomas, locally at least, they they send law clerks our way. They, they we go out to their campuses to talk about our work. Mm-hmm. So I agree. I think that is that is really critical. Yeah, I know high school now that some high schools anyway require community service hours for students right. and all that. So maybe there's a way to, in addition to what they're doing, and I agree, I think they are doing good stuff, but I think there's still a need. And so maybe there's a way to incorporate some requirement of hours for some pro bono work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we have a lot of listeners that are Mm -hmm. young lawyers or law students and some of them, you know, pro bono may just not be on their radar. What would be your parting message to somebody who's a lawyer or going to be a lawyer that isn't aware of this need? What would be your plea? I think one is that you really need to hopefully I can educate you about how legal aid is part of a solution of some of our systemic problems that we have. And I talked about the fact we handle 5,000 cases mm-hmm. in a year. But what I didn't talk about is that for every case that comes in, and like I mentioned, we turn people away. We're also looking for the cases that we handle if there's systemic approaches to advocacy that we can address. Um, so I think that that is something really important for any attorney to know about the work that we're doing, mm-hmm. that we're not only doing direct representation, but we're doing what we call systemic advocacy. In the healthcare space, this was a case that I handled 10 years ago. We had a client whose Medicaid services, like I mentioned, they were denying it on the basis that it was experimental. It's applied behavior analysis or ABA. It's the basic behavior therapy for kids with autism. And, you know, it was, a cl- it was not a class action. It was one client or three clients that we sued the state of Florida mm-hmm. for their denial because private insurance in Florida must cover ABA for kids with mm-hmm. autism or on the autism spectrum. And Medicaid was determining that it was experimental and didn't have to cover it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, our, our pediatric neurologist expert said, you know, I could have two kids, same level of, of severity, but one gets access to the ABA and then all the behaviors improve somewhat where the other therapies also become more effective, right? Because if your behavior is better. And then the the other six-year-old that's insured by Medicaid, because every child's on a curve, right? When you're a parent, you that developmental curve, you like live and die by it when you go to the pediatrician. If you don't move up on the curve, you're essentially falling behind. And so you have a child that's falling behind, even though it's because they didn't have access to the therapy. And so we sued the state of Florida. We're successful for our three clients, but then also the 8,000 children in Florida insured by Medicaid Mm -hmm. on the spectrum got access to this therapy. And that's an example of we could have never helped 8,000 kids with that one legal issue, but because of the way we address the case. And I think that's something important that not only Legal Services of Greater Miami does, but other legal aids do. So we're always looking to make an impact. Mm -hmm. And that's not exactly what you were asking me, but I think it's making the case for why what we do is really important. And even if you don't want to take that one pro bono case, the support that you you could provide to the organization could have an impact beyond what you... Correct, correct. And and it changes, like you said, not just that one case, but the system that may impact that case, but thousands of other cases as well. Our organization was founded Mm -hmm. in the 60s. It came out of LBJ and the war on poverty. And the the concept was actually, how do we use attorneys to challenge the systemic legal barriers 
that were perpetuating both poverty and racism. Mm. And so those are two issues that we're still working on today right. and, and we're, as an organization, trying to address. But, but I would say this, or and I would say this. Okay. If you're a young lawyer or an old lawyer, I don't care what, you know, how old you are, but if you're a lawyer and you're thinking about taking a pro bono case and you're not taking one because you think you're too busy or oh. you're worried about committing to like something that's massive. Because I think yeah. when people hear pro bono, sometimes it's a little vague and intimidating and they're not sure, they're afraid of, you know, because we've all been involved in nightmare cases and I don't want to take on a case that's going to become my life. And it doesn't have to be that way. You can take a case and impact someone's life and help out an organization and really have an impact with very little investment of time and energy, really. And I think if somebody's hesitant to take on a case for full representation, every legal aid that I know of has clinics. And that's right. a great way to There's, dip your toe in the water. Right. And right. the clinic is basically you volunteer for three to four hours and you provide advice to clients. And most of us, we do provide training on the topic right. which you're providing legal advice before. And your advice is reviewed. So you should feel comfortable that you're not giving, you know, you're still giving good legal advice to the clients, but and it's a service. Exactly. So give of your time and give where you can of your money. Right. Both. One or both, but not neither. Neither right? or no. neither. Right. You exactly. Pick. This has been Monica, really a great conversation. Really, Monica, really thank great. you. Oh. If you thank you. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star review. Follow the show. Share us with your friends and family. And we will see you next time. Look for Monica's information in the show notes. Please, please take a pro bono case and support legal services. 100%. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thank you, Monica. Nelson. Thank you, Nelson. Nelson. Thank thank you, you sir. Thank you, Brett. Thank you, Jim. For more information on this show and other resources, visit fastamron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Fast Amron. <laughs> <laughs>